Well, good morning. Good morning. I give honor to our great, our worthy God, the one who is supremely worthy of all glory and praise. I magnify Him and I'm thankful for the privilege to be back with you, brothers and sisters. Good to see each of you that are here. Regret that our brother Paul's not with us, but I trust he might even see improvement as Brother Kevin prayed so that he might be uh, able to come this evening. Glad for the improvement in uh, the Sox uh, family uh, with Brother uh, David and the uh, uh, Lord's touch on him. Uh, we were talking with Brother Kevin a few weeks back and he kind of brought us up to date on a number of the requests and uh, Lawrence glad you've seen some improvement too brother certainly good to see each of you and be together once again I want to invite you to turn with me please to Matthew chapter 12 this morning and uh, I want to direct your attention to some verses that our Lord is teaching uh, in the midst of uh, his miracles of healing and the Pharisees remark about that healing that uh, he was doing that by the power of Beelzebub. Our Lord in the midst of that hands out a warning that is uh, one that is worthy of our attention and I'd like for us to look at it from the standpoint particularly of uh, some things that men want to make exclusive of one another and that is human responsibility and human inability. And we see both of these in this passage as our Lord speaks about it. I'll say more about that by way of just kind of defining it, but it's an important issue, especially uh, when we understand the sovereign grace of God. It's important to be able to hold to both sides of biblical truth. And that is something that our Lord makes reference to even in these words here. Let's pick up in Matthew 12 at, at verse 31. We'll think a little more about the background to what he says in verse 31. But then we'll move on to uh, think about particularly again this subject with regard to uh, God's truth and his sovereignty. In Matthew 12 verse 31 we read, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. O generation of vipers, how can ye being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Let's just ask our God's blessing on his word now. Father, we do bow before you once again in the name above every name, the name of him whose words we read here recorded by inspiration of thy spirit through the pen of Matthew. Father, for those of his day, but also for this time. Father, we pray that you would Bless us now to hear Thy voice, the voice of Thy Son, the voice of Thy Spirit. 
in testimony to thy word of truth and grant, Father, that we might be the beneficiaries of it, that each one of us might, Lord, profit from the word today and bless our time together in this hour. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if we could give you a title by way of uh, the lesson today, to summarize it would be Absolutely Responsible, Absolutely Unable. And that's a reality the Bible speaks of that a lot of people do not seem to grasp. But the scriptures here speak clearly to it. And even the words of our Lord in Matthew 12. Now what we mean by that, when we think about the doctrine of human depravity, what the scriptures teach about the, the human sin of man's heart, The Bible speaks of the fact that man is incapable of doing anything to please God. By nature, the Bible says in Romans 8, that they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Cannot. That's the word of ability. You know, uh, sometimes mothers aggravate children when a little boy will say, Mama, can I have a chocolate chip cookie? Yes, you can. But no, you may not. Because can implies ability, may involves permission. And so mom will hang the child on those points of grammar and maybe Johnny's not too pleased with that, you know. (laughs) He wanted a chocolate chip cookie and he thought he got the nod with the first part of it. But that word can speaks of ability and cannot speaks of inability. 1 Corinthians 2.14 alongside of Romans 8 says... Uh, as it speaks about the natural man. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them, for they're spiritually discerned. And then it says they're foolishness to him, but it says there neither can he know them. The natural man, that is the man that is in Adam. The Greek word there is psukikos. It's the word that uh, speaks of soulish. Man whose spirit has not been birthed by God from above, that man cannot receive, is unable, incapable of receiving the things of the Spirit of God. Now that's the truth the Bible sets forth. And we see it even here in Matthew 12. But equally alongside of that truth is the fact that man, though incapable, is still responsible and accountable to the living God. He is absolutely responsible while absolutely incapable. Now, there are those who, on the basis of that, say, well, both can't be true. And so you have those who would be of, uh, in regard to sovereign grace, they would not embrace the truth of the sovereignty of grace. Sometimes we speak of them as Arminian as far as the doctrine goes, but, but they would say, well, because man is responsible, he must be capable, he must be able. And because he's responsible and accountable to God, then he must be able to respond to truth in his natural person. Well, the Bible, again, doesn't affirm that. On the other side, we have those who say, well, man is incapable. They believe the truth of depravity. And they bow to what it says about man's inability because of the corollary of depravity, the domino of depravity, I like to call it. 
And yet, because of that, they say, well, man is, man is incapable, he's unable to respond. That means he's not accountable, he's not responsible. And so they say, we won't call men to come to Christ, we won't call men to believe, we won't call men to repent. And yet, the reality is, the Scriptures do that. Paul on Mars Hill speaking to those uh, Stoic and Epicurean philosophers who had been hearing him preach about Jesus in the resurrection said, well, let's give this man a hearing. And King James says, what will this babbler say? The Greek word is spermologos. It means a seed picker. Like a bird who has picked some seed here and there. And they think, well, he's, this man sounds educated. I think he just picks something here and picks something there and put it all together and trying to sound smart. Let's hear what he has to say. And he preached the gospel to them. And he concluded with these words. Therefore God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. When our Lord Jesus began His ministry, He began with the words the Baptist had preached. Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, He said in Mark 1.14, and believe the gospel. Two imperatives, two commands to sinners. But we're incapable. Yeah, but you're responsible. And, and that's, that's something that, again, two sides of truth that we find, I believe, within... Uh, the realms of doctrine and theology men depart from. Uh, I think about Brother McGuire in that regard because Brother McGuire was solidly convinced of both of these Bible truths and I remember him telling me on one occasion that uh, he was preaching through Romans on the radio program I think they had with uh, Lau Memorial and uh, he said that he preached Romans 9 one time and one of those men who was of the persuasion of the uh, incapable, not responsible, said he sent him $10. said, Brother McGuire went on to Romans 10 the next week and the man wrote and asked for his money back. <laughs> because Brother McGuire, when he got to Romans 10, he preached that though man's incapable, he's responsible. And he preached on the means that God uses to convert the lost. How shall they hear without a preacher? And, and these, these truths are truths that we ought to be able to hold firmly to. Because in some measure, if you will, and this is not the best illustration because it's not one that would, would be across the board, but, but there are a positive and a negative that we've got to hold to to have really the full realm of truth. Uh, I'm not saying we won't have current, but we need to have both sides. And our Lord teaches this. If you'll notice in these words we've read, Matthew 12, 31 through 37, the background is, our Lord, as verse 22 tells us, has healed a man who was possessed with the devil, blind and dumb or mute, unable to speak. So this man, wrapped up in, in his physical condition because of demonic possession, this man had a case in which he had no sight but he also apparently had no ability to hear because often that accompanies mutinous. Now, the Lord Jesus healed the man. 
And the immediate response of the people is to say, this must be the son of David. And the reason they thought that, and I believe rightly so, is because Isaiah had foretold a day, Isaiah chapter 35, when God would come to save his people and he said, then shall the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped, the tongue of the dumb or the mute will sing and the lame man will leap like a heart. Uh, Those were miracles that were specially reserved for the time, the day when God came to save His people. Elijah and Elisha did some great miracles, but they never opened blind eyes as far as we have the record of Scripture. They never opened deaf ears and made the uh, the tongue of the mute sing. Why? Because those were reserved for that time when, when God would come to save His people. And when Jesus appeared on the scene, guess what? Those miracles started happening. And so they draw the immediate conclusion. He is Messiah. He's the son of David. And the Pharisees, in their envy, they speak up and they say, He cast out devils by the prince of demons, Beelzebul. That's a name that, of course, was used to speak of the uh, God of the Ekronites. He's referred to in 2 Kings chapter 1 when uh, the king Ahaziah falls through a lattice and sends his messengers to go and inquire of Ekron, uh, of the God of Ekron, Beelzebub, and, and uh, see if I'll recover. And of course, Elijah meets them on the way and says, you go back and tell the king, is it not because there's not a God in Israel that you sent to Ekron to ask whether you'll recover? Go back and tell him he's not coming back from his bed. And they do it. They don't go down. To, they follow the word of the man of God. And they go back and tell the king, you ain't getting up, buddy. <laughs> now, they didn't say it that way, mind you, but... <laughs> In other words, and, and, but this, this one, it became a term to refer to the evil one and the Hebrews changed it a little. The Jews changed it to Beelzebub, which means Lord of the Flies. In other words, they, they were mocking him, rightly so, but it was used to speak of Satan. And so they say it's by Satan's power that he's casting out demons. And that leads our Lord to speak these words. He, he first of all shows the foolishness of their logic in verses 25 and following. And then he warns them concerning particularly what they've been guilty of. And, uh, we don't have a long time to speak about the blasphemy of the Spirit because that's not our focus. But I believe simply put, when the Lord Jesus says what he does in verse 31 about the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost, he's warning these men who has said, he's doing this by the power of Beelzebul, he's saying, the Spirit of God in me is witnessing to the fact that I am Messiah by my miracles. The Spirit of God is empowering me. And this is something that we you know, can't fully wrap our minds around with regard to our Lord. He came, came down here by a virgin womb as God become man. And yet as He lived... In our, as our example, He lived in His humanity by the power of the Spirit so that you and I would know how we ought to live. He could have relied on the resources of His deity, His Godhood, but He didn't. As He emptied Himself, as Philippians 2 says, He relied on the Spirit of God to fill Him and equip Him to live so that you and I might know how we ought to live. Because I'll never serve God rightly in the energy of the flesh. We often think we will. We often think, you know, yeah, I can handle this. We can't. It takes the power of His Spirit for us to be equipped to live rightly and honor Him. 
And our Lord Jesus was enabled of the Spirit. And that's something the prophets had told about. That when Messiah came, the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon Him. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 61, other passages speak about the days of Messiah would be days of the Spirit. And so the Spirit was testifying to who Jesus was through His miracles. And yet they were looking clearly at those miracles and saying, that's Satan. So the Lord Jesus warns them about the sin of blasphemy in the Spirit. And He says something interesting. He said, he said, if you speak a word against the Son of Man, in verse 32, it shall be forgiven. If someone seeks forgiveness, in other words, referring to Himself as the Son of Man and His humiliation. There were many who didn't understand who He was. But when the Spirit testified to who He was, and they rejected that witness... As they continued to reject that witness, they stood in danger of blaspheming the Spirit. Now, it doesn't mean that a person could resist the work of the Spirit and be forever guilty, no. But when they continue in that, our Lord doesn't say they've committed, then He warns them against committing that sin by their rejection of the witness of the Spirit. And then as the Lord Jesus speaks about this, He makes this statement in verse 33. Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. It's as though he's saying, you Pharisees, make up your mind. Which way are you going to go? If you're going to follow God, if you're going to be, as you profess, followers of him, you're going to have to follow me because I'm his servant, his son, his Messiah. His anointed one. Or either just go the other direction. Now, obviously he's not encouraging men to sin, but he's saying it's choosing time. Which is another aspect of this that ties in with human responsibility. Some people, when they come to understand the doctrines of sovereign grace, believe that means you don't press men to decide for Christ. In other words, you don't, you don't call on them to repent and believe. Because after all, they can't, right? Right. But that doesn't mean you don't call on them. And here again, we've got that, that uh, antinomy, as Mr. Packer calls it. I was preaching up in Lancaster, Kentucky some years ago. And uh, some of you... Good morning. Some of you... Uh, May, may be familiar with Lancaster, Pennsylvania, but but this is Lancaster, Kentucky. And uh, down in South Carolina, it's Lancaster too, I believe. Lancaster again in Pennsylvania. It's kind of like Albany and Albany, Georgia and New York, I guess. We're in Matthew 12, by the way, sister, in our lesson this morning. And uh, verses 31 through 37. Uh, I was preaching up there and on that Sunday morning message we began the meeting we were going through Friday night I called on men to repent and believe and after the message we finished and I was visiting with some of the people one of the deacons of the church walked up to me and said you shouldn't be calling on men to repent they can't I said I understand that but the Bible says in Acts 17 that God commandeth all men everywhere to repent he said, you shouldn't be doing that. 
I said, well, I said, I'm just going to stick with what God says on this one. You know? <laughs> now that's a no-brainer, you know, in my estimation, but he wanted to catechize me, so I'm just going to end it that way. But this becomes often a debate among those who believe in God's sovereignty and grace in that they want to say, well, if it's His work, then we should not call upon men to repent, believe, but notice the Lord Jesus' words in verse 33. In words of command, imperative, He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and its fruit corrupt. In other words, here we have accountability, human responsibility. They are told what they are to do. Now apart from grace, will they do it? No, but we are responsible. Now you say, well, Brother David, how do you know they're incapable? Well, notice the next verse, verse 34. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. Now notice the word can there in verse 34. O generation of... and. This was the way John the Baptist greeted his audience too, you know, in Matthew 3. As a preacher, I've never done that to my congregations. Uh, I don't know how well it'd go over. You brood of snakes! That's what John said. Remember, O generation of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? But Jesus does it here. He's talking to an extremely religious crowd, the Pharisees, and he says, you offspring of snakes, you a generation of vipers. Now that, that's, that's meant to be an attention getter. But I remind you what Psalm 58 says. Let's just turn back there please to verse 3 and notice what we find in, in those words there. Psalm 58, we read this in verse 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. That is alienated. From whom? From the living God. They're estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born speaking lies. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the deaf adder that stoppeth her ear, which will not hearken to the voice of charmers, charming never so wisely. As David speaks here concerning the wicked in Psalm 58, he speaks of some realities concerning the wicked. And that is, this is something that we often don't bring into bear, but the Bible makes clear David himself confessed it in Psalm 51. Remember what he said there as he cried out about his sin to God. He said, Behold, I was what? Shapen in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. And here, David looking at the wicked speaks of us as estranged, alienated from the womb. And then he speaks of the reality that they go astray as soon as they be born speaking lies. And sadly, our children bear testimony to that, don't they? Did you eat that candy? <laughs> Got it in his mouth. But, mm-mm. Mm-mm. I used to read Family Circus by Bill Keene, the comic strip, you know. And of course, they had all the children there, and there was that broken vase on the floor. And who broke that? 
I don't know. And he had a little ghost name, I don't know, running off, you know. Because that, that's the tendency. We tend to lie. And it's in us. But then it gives us illustration in verse 4. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the deaf adder that stopped at their ear. In other words, they're like a snake. Now here's the thing. When does that rattlesnake become a rattlesnake? When it's this long? Or this long? No, when it's an egg. Because it it's a rattlesnake by nature. And that's the reality, brothers and sisters, of sin. And, and as our Lord speaks of these religious Pharisees and others whom He's rebuking because they failed to recognize His miracle as pointing to His Messiahship, as they, they are addressed by Him, He says, How can ye... This is going back now to Matthew twelve thirty four. How can ye, how are ye able being evil to speak good things? In other words, the reality of depravity and inability leads to them being unable to speak that which is genuinely good before God. Now that, that is, again, one of the realities of our sin the Bible speaks of. Uh, and it ties in with really the, the overall picture of humanity in Adam from the beginning. The words of Genesis 6-5, God's verdict on humanity before the flood. Some of you remember the words, but Genesis 6-5, And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every imagination of the thought of man's heart was only evil continually. That's quite a... That, the gavel dropped there. And it says guilty. And that's what Romans 3 says. As a result of our sin, as Paul quotes those words from the Old Testament, and he says, we know that whatsoever the things the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world become guilty. In other words, every one of us, the verdict's passed in myself, in Adam. I'm guilty and I desperately need a Savior. I desperately need someone who can take my place in the line, who can pay my sin debt and my hell penalty. This matter of inability then, brothers and sisters, is, is something that is a part of the Bible picture of where we are. And as a result of that, uh, we, we, we have to bow to what it says. But again... We can't take one side of truth without as well embracing the other. And notice what our Lord Jesus does in verses 33 and 34 of Matthew 12. He puts together responsibility. Make the tree good or make it corrupt. That's the imperative, the command. That's the responsibility you and I have. And yet inability. How can ye, being evil, speak good things? And he doesn't blush. In other words, the two are welded, wed side by side here because of the truth of what uh, the Bible affirms about us 
Let's look further at the passage just to round it out. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of trouble. Excuse me, the day of judgment. It will be a day of trouble for many. The day of trouble is what Proverbs 16 calls it. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Here the Lord Jesus speaks of the reality of judgment here. Why? Because man stands accountable. And our actions matter. Now in, in, in our day, because of sociology and psychology, Many have had what we could call a flight from responsibility. In other words, because of my environment or because of my uh, conditioning, I'm not accountable. But the Bible makes it clear I am accountable. Now, do those realities mitigate my responsibility? In some measure, but they do not negate it. They will not say, no, ultimately, I'm not accountable. I do stand accountable before God. Else, God could not judge the world. But He will. Why? Because you and I, as sons and daughters of Adam, who have been made in His image, though fallen, though that image has been marred and broken, you and I are accountable before Him. And as a result, we will stand. One day, and we will give account. And that's thoroughly wedded through the Scriptures. Uh, Abraham anticipated it when God spoke about His two angels who were going down to check out Sodom and Gomorrah. And you remember what Abraham said, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Genesis 18.25 He counted on that. He, He was convinced that God's going to do right. And that, brothers and sisters, is something that leads him to deal with sin and judgment. Now, this reality here that our Lord speaks of is something, again, we find throughout the Scriptures. And I want us to look at some Scripture. We've already referred to some of them, but I I want us just to kind of reinforce what we've said in terms of of, uh, what our Lord says here uh, with the words of Romans 8. Would you turn with me there, please? And as the Apostle, by inspiration, points out the great way of salvation through the work of Christ of how sinners delivered from sin and from sin's penalty, its condemnation through what the Lord Jesus Christ has done at the cross. He, he, as it were, recapitulates that in the opening of Romans 8. In verses 1 and following, he begins by saying, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And he talks about how God did what the law could not do in verse 3 by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. And then he speaks about God's purpose in that, verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Then notice verse 5 of Romans 8. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded, that is to have the mind that is set on the flesh, is death. 
But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind, that is, again, the mind set on the flesh, is enmity, that is, hostility against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Don't know the words could be more clearer. And yet, so often men will mistake here and say, well, yep. Now, the Bible tells us this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. After telling us about Enoch, who walked with God and was not because he pleased God. It says in Romans eleven six. But without faith, it is impossible to please Him, to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Now notice how that begins. It's impossible without faith to please God. So we have an impossibility there. But we have an inability here. They that are in the flesh cannot, what? Please God. So what does that mean? Well, if it's impossible to please Him without faith, and they that are in the flesh can't please Him, what does that mean? They that are in the flesh can't believe. I think the Lord Jesus illustrated it so beautifully in His ministry when a rich young ruler came running to Him and said, What must I do? I was down in the Virgin Islands preaching. And uh, the pastor we were with, host pastor there at Mother Bethel Baptist Church in Charles de Mali in St. Thomas, he uh, preached a message about uh, the birds in Matthew 13. And, and down there they call what we would call bird waste, they call it caca. <laughs> and he preached a message about caca. Not altogether, there was more than that to it. Well, let me say this, if I may, and pardon me. This young man came with a question, what must I do? He had do religion. And I would like to alter that and say he had do-do religion. Because any religion that I put my hand on is going to be soiled. I need a religion that comes from God. And the Lord Jesus pointed that out to him. First of all, the young man began by saying, Good Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, Why do you call me good? There's none good but God. Some would say, Well, Jesus was saying he was not the holy other God. No, Jesus was telling this young man, If all you want's a teacher, you need more than a good teacher. You see, a lot of folk think in order to be saved, all they need is moral instruction. You and I need more than moral instruction to be saved. You and I need someone who can come to where we are and in our lost condition do what we cannot do for ourselves and save us. And that's what our Lord Jesus pointed out. So He then went and took the standard of the law and said, what do you read in the law? He said, all these things have I done from my youth up. And then the Lord Jesus put one on Him. He gave the demand to the kingdom. Really, He said, then go sell all you have. Give to the poor and come follow me. And the young man went away sorrowful. And when he did, the Lord Jesus said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter the kingdom of heaven? And the disciples said, 
who then can be saved? It seems they had the Jewish mindset of the day that those who were rich were supremely favored by God because they were His favorites. They were going to enter first. And the Lord Jesus turns that upside down. How hardly shall they that have riches be saved? Who then shall be saved? And the Lord Jesus says something, remember? With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Martin Lloyd-Jones had a sermon, Salvation Impossible with Men, and it is. You can't be saved in yourself. And this is, brothers and sisters, what Paul's reaffirming here as he's done so well throughout Romans, but he does it again in Romans 8. Like the preacher said, first I tell them what I'm going to tell them, then I tell them, then I tell them what I told them. Well, that's what Paul keeps doing. He keeps on reinforcing that message. And here again, he underscores, they that are in the flesh, those still in union with Adam, those still hanging from the loins of Adam, they cannot please God. It's impossible. And that, brothers and sisters, is a Bible reality. It's seen in 1 Corinthians 2 as well. And if you would quickly turn there and notice with me what we find in uh, the words of the Apostle that line up with the words of our Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the words there, verse 14, we find this, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Notice the emphasis on inability there as we read about the natural man, that is the soulish man, the man who has not been breathed upon by the Spirit of God in the new birth. That man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Because they're foolishness unto him. And it says as well, neither can he know them, neither is he able to know them because they are spiritually discerned. Now here is here's again the testimony of man's inability. And that, brothers and sisters, is a reality that the Bible speaks of to the fallout of sin in our lives. In other words, and I say this to make the point, 1 Corinthians 2.14 is telling us that when a son or daughter of Adam is born, that son or daughter of Adam is born spiritually brain dead. Spiritually brain dead. Uh, sometimes you've been to Cracker Barrel, I imagine. You've seen the triangle game there that's got the golf tees on it. You know, you try to jump those golf tees till you leave just one, right? And if you won, you're you're I don't remember whether it's smart, but you're really smart, you know. And then they give you the levels. If you leave four, you're an ignoramus. Well, man's a spiritual ignoramus regarding the things of God by birth. And we need the Spirit of God to enlighten our mind, if you will, to baptize our brains so that our minds can be suffused with truth by means of a new nature that comes through the new birth. And that's what the Spirit of God does when we're saved. We're raised out of the deadness of sin, Ephesians 2 tells us, and we're brought into life in union with Christ. Now, this is inability. Now let me just give you a, a few verses that would point out and we'll work our way back to the Gospels, but stop by Acts 17 that we made reference to earlier. Acts chapter 17. 
as the apostle again, Paul speaks on Mars Hill there in Athens. And as he addresses the philosophers and sets forth our God who is greater than His creation, who made all things. And as he speaks of Him in reality to men seeking after Him, he says this in verse 27. Let's go back to verse 26 just to have a little context. And He that is God hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Why? That they should seek the Lord if haply they might feel after Him and find Him though He be not far from every one of us. Notice the reality of man seeking God. God's design and God's desire that men seek Him. And then as it is, Paul goes on to say as he speaks of God's now sending the gospel out to the nations. Verse 30, and the times of this ignorance God winked at. That is, God passed by, overlooked, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. God gives this mandate to humanity. Repent. Experience a change of mind that leads to a corresponding change of heart. Men are called to do that. And the reason, because He hath appointed a day into which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He hath ordained, that is Jesus Christ, whereof He hath given assurance unto all men, and that He hath raised Him from the dead. Now, if you would just turn back with me, please, to the words of uh, Mark chapter 1. And notice our Lord's words as Mark records them by inspiration. Mark chapter 1, in verse 14 we read, Now after that John, that is the Baptist, was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. The word repent, the word believe again are both imperatives in what we call the mood of command. And and that speaks again of what man's duty is, what man's responsibility is, to repent, to believe. Rolf Barnard used to speak of it this way. He'd say, stack arms and throw up the white flag of surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. What he meant by that was, you know, when an army would surrender to another army, they would stack arms because they were saying, we're not fighting anymore. That's what Barnard would say as he thought about what repentance is. You throw down the weapons of your warfare against the living God and you stack arms. You throw up the white flag of surrender. You cry, I yield, I yield. And our Lord here is calling on sinners in the light of the kingdom that He is preaching the good news about. He calls on sinners to repent and to believe that message and therefore to govern their lives accordingly. This is again the message that the Baptist himself had preached. As Matthew records in the words of Matthew 3, 2, you don't need to turn there, but John came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is what the prophets preach, really. Different word, turn. Not repent, but turn. And that was the word that speaks of the reality of what life is to be. I'm going the wrong way and God's mandate is turn. Turn, sons of men, turn. And as God does that in His call to us, in His mercy to us, God gives us that command to turn. That command to to do that which, apart from His grace, we won't do. 
And that's why in Jeremiah 31 we see Ephraim crying out and mourning and saying, Turn me, O God, and I'll be turned. I know I'm responsible, but I'm not able. And brothers and sisters, that's, that's a reality in, in the hearts of those in whom God has worked. They cry out as Ephraim did. Those words, by the way, are uh, Jeremiah 31, 18. Jeremiah wrote, I have surely, I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus. Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised. As a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke, turn thou me, and I shall be turned. For thou art the Lord my God. Surely after that I was turned, I repented. And after that I was instructed, I smote upon my thigh. I was ashamed, yea, even confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. Listen to those words. Those are the words of a repentant sinner. He's turning. Why is he turning? Because he's been turned. Hallelujah. Well, brothers, sisters, there's more that we can say about this, but time's gone. And I hope that God might help us. Let me just close quickly with this. Uh, Brother John Reesinger was an evangelist, preached for many years, died in his 90s up in upstate New York. Brother Reesinger said as a sovereign grace believer, he, he used to not like that song, I have decided to follow Jesus. But he said he realized that genuinely saved people do decide to follow Jesus. He said... The problem was the song didn't tell the whole story. So he added some stanzas. I'm not going to sing them for you. I don't want to have a premature exit, you know. But in line with that tune, I have decided to follow Jesus. He wrote, The Father chose me in sovereign grace. No turning back, no turning back. The Son redeemed me by His shed blood. The Spirit called me and gave me faith. You see... That's why I've decided to follow Jesus. We choose Him because He first chose us, just like we love Him because He first loved us. We call on Him because He called on us. I love Miss Crosby's hymn, Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior. You know, they say that she wrote that hymn after she'd had a dream one night. She dreamed she was in a church building, sitting in a pew, and she saw the Lord Jesus going from one pew to another pew, but He didn't stop by her pew. And so she wrote that hymn, Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry, while on others thou art calling. Do not pass me by. That's what Ephraim's saying. Turn me, and I'll be turned. Thank you so much.